0: Jeff Karabinow is professor and associate director in the School of Social Work at Dalhousie University. He's worked with homeless populations in Toronto, Montreal, Halifax, and Guatemala. And his research focuses mainly on housing stability, service delivery systems, trauma, and homeless youth culture. I want to say first that right now we don't even really know how many people are currently experiencing homelessness in so-called Canada. The number could be anywhere between 150,000 to 300,000 people, according to the Homeless Hub, a research center at York University. That is too wide a range. What that range says is that our system cannot see unhoused people. The tools we're using, for example Homeless Hub is using AI now to predict that the number will swell to over half a million people by 2030. The tools we're using to measure and respond to the problem are fundamentally broken. One of the big themes in this conversation is the idea of vulnerability or rawness. It's clear to anyone who's paying attention that the people who are living unhoused are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to extreme weather, to so-called deaths of despair. They're vulnerable to violence, among other forms of harassment and precarity. But the other side of vulnerability has to do with those of us who are housed and who are buffered from the serious social issues that exist right outside of our doors. Much of what Jeff does is about breaking down barriers, the visible and invisible barriers to radical social change that keep the solvable problem of homelessness in a state of perpetual disaster. We break down those barriers in this conversation, at least discursively. They include systems of policy making that exclude first voices, academic research practices that don't authentically include a community-based aspect, a kind of reticence about cultivating what Jeff calls caring, authentic spaces in a world that sometimes punishes us for trying. Engaging with everyone is really what's required to get answers pushed into place. But that means looking seriously at the hierarchies, the opaque strategies and structures of exhaustion that privilege some and punish others. It also means taking seriously the effects of our histories of colonialism and racial capitalism that are about extraction and exploitation of the land and people. I know it's a lot, but that is where the language that Jeff uses for outlining the problem becomes so valuable. At the heart of it is just this idea that actually housing is the foundation of a healthy, dignified life. As much as he gestures to the importance of being raw and real and letting emotion. an acceptable part of political communication, Jeff is also really just emphasizing the fundamental question of dignity and dignified living, which is the crux of recognizing the displacement of people onto the streets by an unfeeling system as a clear and present disaster. People shouldn't have to show their resilience the way this system makes them. People need homes, they need subsistence, They need a proliferation of spaces where a strong culture of care exists. They do not need a system that seeks to silence and sideline them. Maybe the most striking thing that Carabino explains in this conversation is that the solutions are simple. What's complicated is the matter of building the relationships necessary to influence policy. This is why he drives home the fact that political action is crucial, collective struggle is important. Making sure we're using tactics that move people is essential. Because in his words, homelessness has always been a disaster. When that disaster is visible, that is the time to act with a sense of urgency. But even and especially when that disaster is invisibilized, it is still time to act with a sense of urgency. So, yeah, thanks so much for speaking with me. I, you know, I've learned a lot from reading your work, but um, it's interesting to kind of try to apply, um, you know, social justice lens to this ongoing uh, disaster, Um, this this inflection point that we're reaching now with the with the waves of um, unhoused people that are living not just here in uh, in in Chibuktuk, Mi'kma'ki, but, you know, across so-called Canada, um, you know, there is this, this crisis that won't go away, but, you know, locally, I think it's, it's, um, you know, a prominent issue here because we're seeing people die. We're seeing people overdose in front of city hall. We're seeing fires in tents, deaths related to people just trying to stay warm. Um, and, you know, even, Kind of strange controversies around people receiving free electricity as a as a just a kind of crisis measure um, But yeah, we're at a point. I think if we wanted to track it where like, you know, CBC is reporting that uh, Nova Scotia's first tiny village of emergency pallet shelters will be opening at Beacon House in Lower Sackville um, You know, I guess pallet is a US supplier of these uh, so-called emergency sleeping cabins um, You know, 19 units are expected to arrive uh, toward the end of the month, um, part of 200 that have been purchased. So, like, what struck me in reading this news was that, you know, the shelters look a lot like the emergency shelters that were constructed by community activists that, you know, Halifax police officers destroyed in August 2021 when they evicted unhoused people from uh, the Peace and Friendship Park, the Halifax Common, Horseshoe Island Park. Um, and maybe most visibly the site of the former Halifax Memorial Library. Um, You know, what do you think about this particular crisis measure? Is it adequate? And how should we contextualize it in the long struggle to make housing a human right?
1: I think that um, everything we do around homelessness seems to be, we, we, seems to be, emergency crisis reactions. We rarely put any resources or thought to more preventative, more sustainable, more social justice platforms. Um, So this is these pallet homes. I just did a a, a quick little interview uh, this morning on the pallet homes. I mean, these pallet homes, they're better than nothing. Mm-hmm. uh you know they provide a little bit more dignity. I've also made the comment that they are you know look very similar to what you know the municipality tore down for the last few years Now we're embracing that as a particular band-aid solution um I mean the context is that we're a rich country. There should be really nobody, especially in Nova Scotia, where we still have somewhat manageable populations that are visibly living rough, that we could be mobilizing to put folks into much safer, more dignified environments. So we, we've, we've witnessed, you know, opening of another shelter, emergency shelter, that's going to be a collective open space. Um, we've witnessed better tents being provided we've witnessed more kind of street navigation outreach connection we've witnessed now the pallet houses that you know should have been should have been here in the fall um, so w- we consistently see last minute mobilization to provide some form of short-term band-aid care uh, because this is a very visible dynamic right now. And, you know, while there's lots of caring folks in the municipality and the province that are working day in and day out kind of on the ground with a lot of other folks in the nonprofit community. uh, It's something that I think is so visible that the government needs and has to kind of feel that they got to be part of it. So again, it's these kind of last minute, um, um, huge announcements. And And again, like, it's like, it's just out of reach of when they really needed to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen that over the years as well. So it's very frustrating that we're, you know, folks are going to have to spend least, at least another month kind of, you know, in pretty extreme weather until these things are set up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just, I find it interesting to think about your perspectives on the social policy changes, the kind of proactive stuff that would address the growing number of people experiencing homelessness. Um, alongside, you know, other writing on the subject, right? So, like, there are people who point out that, you know, municipalities in many ways are on the front lines, like land use, zoning laws, housing approvals, like, those are important things um, as tools to just, like, encourage if affordable housing. Um, people like Jerusalem Demsis, writing for the Atlantic saying that, uh, quote, we, when we have a dire shortage of affordable housing, it's all but guaranteed That a certain number of people will become homeless right but like you're clear about the need certainly for like what you call local responsiveness and yet you've also admitted that we're playing catch-up and it's going to get worse before it gets better you said that in an interview i think last year um so i'm wondering first of all what you meant if it you know needs to get worse before it gets better like that's the logic uh you know which is striking considering it's already really bad um or if it's about your sense of how complex like multi-level governance is in a place in a rich country like Canada mm. you know like how do we mobilize all of the players to right. more urgently address the issue of homelessness at its root
1: right that's a really nice question um uh, i i definitely meant more the latter that i mean mm. it's going to get worse before it gets better A lot of it due to the fact that we are playing massive catch up after 30 odd years of disinvestment in any form of affordable community housing application. So we've got that as a major, major context. Secondly, it always seems like there's a lot of advocacy around a mobilization in early fall to, to warn both the municipality and the province that things are going to become more dire shelters are all full there's not enough affordable housing housing support workers are feeling extremely frustrated uh, outreach workers are very worried around you know just the health of folks that are living rough and again there's a lot of back and forth i mean i mean it it's it's The systems make it very complex. I think homelessness is a pretty simple dynamic in the sense of, you know, if you could find some form of housing infrastructure that's safe and healthy, um, then you don't have the issue anymore. You have other dynamics that need to be at play as well to support folks that are exiting the street. But the fact of being unhoused kind of can be eradicated pretty quickly. Um, But to navigate the different layers of government the different systems that are at play, the more and more I'm starting to learn the complexity of bylaws, of zoning, of how the interplay between different housing systems at the municipal and the provincial level make things really overwhelming and takes a lot of time. Like like there's, we've also, I sit on a committee where we are connected to the Reaching Home funding uh, that's federal funding for homelessness and even trying to navigate the money that comes at the federal level that we have the jurisdiction to kind of work with all the nonprofits to figure out what can be the next play it it takes it it, it just it's it's overwhelming how long and how what is the labor to To even like purchase something and get it on market and get it set up for folks that are in dire need. So I'm kind of, you know, I've become humbled in in realizing just how complicated that side of housing can be. I mean, I I, like my experience is... We just keep bugging, bugging, bugging until Mm. finally somebody gives up and they give us something that can be a sustainable spot for folks. And we've done that in the past. But, you know, now with just the amount of folks that are living in encampments, we need something that's more coordinated. And we're seeing that. I mean, again, you know, there's going to be I mean, there's discussion right now. Uh, around, and by the time this probably airs, we'll have more of an understanding, but there's there there could be a purchase of a hotel or something that mm-hmm. is, allows for a little bit more sustainable um adventure to 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 get folks off the streets mm-hmm.
0: yeah, like this is the thing. there is no question really that. We're in desperate need of just an adequate supply of, of like affordable housing and just more robust or, or, or like faster movement toward more robust uh, spaces for people to to live. And that like, I think it's also pretty clear to folks that the private housing market alone is just not going to provide that. No. Nope. Um, do you think we're kind of missing something, though, if we do only approach it as a housing issue, like thinking specifically about Halifax, if our goal is to have everyone currently living in tents to be housed indoors. Like, is supply the only barrier? Should we be considering, you know, things like mental health and substance use alongside the lack of housing as reasons for why, you know, we have so many people in encampments? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I, I'm definitely those are considerations. My sense and my research uh, and my my practice, um, and it may be my own dogma here, but I always feel that. Finding that sense of stability and belonging is so huge in really understanding then the other dynamics like mental health, like addiction, like employment, like education that are kind of the the entities that can build better connection to civil society for a lot of folks that feel extremely marginalized right now. We're amazed that every time we kind of house folks over the years, um, that is the better understanding of then where they are in terms of physical, emotional, uh, psychological health. You've got to first give somebody some form of stability to really then gain a baseline of what is it that they need to, you know, to to be able to kind of be part of civil society. Once again, um, there's a lot of trauma, you know, on the streets uh, prior to to street culture as they exist and survive on the streets. And even exiting is is can be very overwhelming. Once you kind of get that baseline down, once you can provide some form of housing stability, then I think with the individual, we can really work on what the next stages are like. And it's very rare that folks can't actually um, kind of move forward and stay off the streets after they've actually had, you know, um, been part of selecting choosing finding a space and making it their own and you know a more dignified a more participatory style of engagement in the world than is is actually extremely pivotal to one's sense of self so i I, yes there's a lot i mean there's a lot of we're hearing a lot about a lot of addiction dynamics a lot of mental health in these encampments um that's really not surprising me street life is extremely violent, extremely dangerous. Um, homelessness is a disaster. It's a dangerous, period. So you're getting folks that are living in, in particular communities, those communities at some point kind of move away from that collective sense of belonging and care. And it's still, I mean, there's still those elements there, but also people are like, are in really rough spots. And uh, there's a lot of exploitation on the streets as well, as we all know. So kind of, I always think like, you know, like, The better sense is if we can find some form of like platform of stability, then with the individual or with even kind of a collective of folks that have exited, we could kind of figure out what next steps are like. Um, My work in Montreal, I think, really, really highlighted and I, I talked a lot about kind of the sense of, you know, critical consciousness that surfaces once somebody has their basic needs met and can kind of start to see themselves vis-a-vis the structural elements in their worlds. And that yeah. comes, of course, with time and with stability.
0: Yeah, I mean, that uh, really resonates for me. Like, that—that that is something that I took away from reading a lot of your research, especially, of course, on um young people uh experiencing homelessness and what the transition out of and then back into and then out of again maybe feels like in terms of stability and like sense of self um but you've got this one short essay that i wanted to point to where you you actually reflect on living through the pandemic as a social work professor and you talk about how uh to quote you everyone deserves the same opportunities to be safe healthy and protected And, like, what comes through in a way is this just core value of, Mm -hmm. like, obviously, social justice, anti-oppression, kind of equality, liberation from that, like, grinding fragility that our economic system produces and kind of runs on in some ways. Um, Like, that word fragility comes up a few times in your work. And I wondered why some of what you're working through hinges on that feeling of fragility and, like, fighting fragility. Um, And I guess, like, more specifically, what kind of community you hope for in the face
1: of that fragility? You know, I think one thing over... Just just my years of work, I was honored to be working with a lot of different communities um, that were experiencing homelessness in, in, in a variety of different locations. And there is a... What really struck me is there's a there's a deep, deep sense of precarity, of of not feeling like you fit in anywhere. And I think fragility, my sense, my the language of fragility is that the more you sit in these marginal spaces, the more you understand your environment's messaging that you don't belong and hmm. you're not worthy it 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 this this sense of fragility becomes a ingrained marker in your mental health in your spiritual health in your psychological health in your emotional well-being like this notion of fragility is even if you can capture one basic need today like you have a tent for the night at least and you know that you know the the storm is abiding you can stay there for the night there's still so much of a sense of a precarity of you you so much is not meted out for you that there is that consistent anxiety of how you're going to survive and that comes that you know that comes very very clear to me in um in working with with a lot of folks that are experiencing homelessness and i and i guess my sense is that having that foundation of of some form of healthy dignified living space is a way to start to kind of break down a sense of fragility. It allows for a sense of, you know, feeling human again. I remember uh, we, we, we we followed young people uh, who were exiting the streets in Toronto, Montreal. And actually, no, sorry. This was a different study where we were following young people exiting the streets across Canada. And so many spoke about the first day they woke up in their own space was so important to them feeling human again um and that that has always very much resonated this idea that the this is these are communities that you know appear almost kind of angry at the world um and there there's so much of a, a, a of a rationale for why they are so angry but the more you we I've connected with them, the more I've realized how insecure their whole existence is. And 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 again, like, you know, that's why like, you know, just the just the sense of being able to provide some form of dignified living is a beginning of building a a, a sense of solid solidity in your world it's not the panacea and you know argued i'm I'm actually moving much more towards buying into kind of a guaranteed annual income a basic income as maybe the way to move forward um you know housing is important definitely 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 uh in so many different ways but uh to to also be able to be human again we you know folks need to be engage in, in a number of different elements and a guaranteed basic income could possibly provide that.
0: Yeah, no, I think like absolutely. And there's broad support, like there's tons of public support for that. Um, it yeah, shouldn't be, seen, it shouldn't be seen as radical. Um, nope, not at all. and it's like interesting, you know, how you describe this kind of, um, This moment of feeling like almost, uh, yeah, like exhilarated, reassured by like the feeling of stability reminds me of the uh, documentary *Dark Days*, right? This this film by Mark Singer from like 2000 about people living in like Amtrak tunnels, in underground abandoned subway tunnels. Um, You know, this invisibilizing of of the unhoused underground and like what it meant to come out of the out of like literally the ground out of the shadows and into the light. Like the film concludes with that moment. And it's unbelievably cathartic, not, you know, obviously for the people depicted, but like for you as a viewer to see what that transformation must feel like. And they go certainly from a position of like anger, hostility, um, and avowing. They're just like their hustle against like society's rejection of them and the violence done to them on the streets to you know, accepting this comfort that they had sort of, yeah, rejected out of a kind of necessity. But, um, I want, I wanted to kind of, uh, pick on, pick, pick up on something you said about like fragility and relate it to like this, this sense that I think we're increasingly getting that like, um, you know, we, we might not think of people who are sleeping rough or who are displaced as like refugees. Right they're a different category. But like when wildfires hit us here in Mi'kma'ki this year, or last year, rather, you know, suddenly it was clear that like, we have climate refugees here, that like, as sea level rise looms, we're going to have more. And I think like that feeling of precarity and fragility is becoming more of like an everyday experience. We sometimes call it like eco-anxiety or climate anxiety. Uh, We're going to have more internally displaced people, as you said, like, it might get worse before it gets better. And if we just wait and don't adapt, um, the consequences are going to be very severe. Um, And yet like adopting that future oriented perspective seems to be a real leap, especially for people in like, you know, places of political power that have to worry about like elections, you know, and this is something you've spoken about really well. I don't know if you wanted to expand on that. I saw you in a recent um, like uh, uh, news broadcast talking about this, right? Like the just the logic of electoral cycles and spending being in some ways a deterrent to that future oriented way of doing policy,
1: yeah, yeah, um just before that, like your point like made me think also of uh you know we started to we started to have a better sense of 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 that whole notion of you know kind of disaster reality when COVID hit us. And, you know, and I think our last kind of academic social science, humanities research council funded study kind of, I wanted to explore how, you know, homelessness has always been a disaster, but it was never seen as a disaster. The pandemic was seen as a disaster. So I kind of wanted to merge like one lens of disaster to another uh, to start to allow Kind of, well, policymakers in particular, but also the public, to understand that we should be cons- can always considering the fact that somebody living unhoused, uh, as 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 like you're saying, like as actually a mm. um, uh, some you know, like I don't like the term refugee, but like the the idea of of they're in a disaster space, and we right. need to have some form of dynamic that you know. The municipal or provincial elements can provide some form of support, just like we did with the wildfires. Right yeah. there, with very yeah, engaged, yeah. very strategic plan totally. to support folks, and that and that and that's important and that's needed. Um, we need to also employ those strategies to other disasters and this consistent disaster is around homelessness which we're seeing for the first time now i think i think the public is really buying into the notion now that yeah you know what this is actually something something is actually off and we need to be we need to be thinking through how we can provide basic needs to all citizens and we're starting to see more and more homelessness as part of our communities and as part of our citizenship the idea of you know you know kind of the political environment it's really frustrating because like, there's so many great folks in the political arena in our province that have deep deep care and understanding and commitment to trying to figure out the homeless crisis and the housing crisis um and it's it's I find it so frustrating when they share how their hands are tied that there's mm-hmm. so little that they can do. That once they kind of mobilize a particular uh, um, initiative up the levels, up the chain of command, that it it tends to kind of be thrown out um, mm-hmm. because there's not that vision. There's not that preventative mechanism of understanding that these are issues that are going to plague us uh, for a long time. And they can also, we can also be arguing this in a, as a cost benefit measure as well. Just like a guaranteed totally. annual income is that we can try to argue in the language of kind of, you know, our capitalist uh, environment that these things are going to save us money in the future.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, if the idea of saving lives is not enough. Um, so I think we need to, I mean, I think the the reason I've moved a lot to art-based dissemination is for um much easier, more tangible engagement of policy policymakers to talk about these dynamics. I'm doing a talk actually for policymakers in, in in two weeks. And I'm I'm using something the mayor actually, our our mayor has has said that was the first thing that when he he said, like, when I think of youth homelessness, I think about this animated piece you've done. Uh, mm-hmm. And it kind of hits me in, 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 in a raw way that other things haven't. And I think, I, 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 for me at least, I think I have had more success in trying to disseminate particular ideas or initiatives through uh, art than, than anything else. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think maybe this is a time... I may be a bit optimistic, but I think this may be a time where politicians are more apt to listening because it has just become uh, just consistent um, news around housing and homelessness. And, you know, my worry is that they're starting to conflate, you know, increase in newcomers and immigration as the kind of major you know fault axis of what we're, why we're why we're seeing a housing shortage now when really you know that is that is you know it happens to be ha- it's happening at the same time how that we're having increased populations but you know yeah, yeah. We, we can actually see the decrease in engagement and investment in public and community housing over mm-hmm. the past 30 years and how that's impacted us compared to for example Montreal where there was less of a of a a disengagement or in Vancouver where there's been less of a disengagement.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I share that kind of concern with what I see as kind of like this right populist search mm. for just kind of like these easy expedient easy. answers. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's dangerous. Like we really, uh, you know, Naomi Klein's new book doppelgangers about how we actually really have to pay attention to the appeal of those kinds of uh, easy baked kind of answers um, to really complex problems. But Yeah. I mean, there's tons in what you just said in terms of like how infrastructure determines our exposure to disasters that in some ways, these, these natural disasters even are even are not particularly natural. They're really like socially engineered disasters, like in terms of their costs anyway. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in um, arts-based strategies for kind of uh, displacing the discourse from just like standard, dry, academic, policy-based things that clearly have not worked because things have not changed uh, as much as they needed to. You've written that, um, for example, street cul- street cultures can be sites of excitement, belonging, and acceptance, as well as exploitation, violence, and stress. They're not just one thing. And I think like that gets to the heart in some ways of the value of of a more like nuanced arts-based strategy, right? You've got this reductionist stigma directed at people who are unhoused that is especially inhumane Um, but arts based methods especially that come from those people uh, can be useful for undoing that stigma and like recuperating the obvious humanity of of those that find themselves on the streets Um, you know did you want to talk more about like what you discovered in the uses of art for this purpose? I mean, you've written that art can also allow us to convey emotion and engender emp- empathy in ways that research just can't. Um, where did you kind of discover that and how did it change your approach to, you know, studying and addressing this problem?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think th- my first relationship with art bait work was, um, was being in Guatemala um, with the United Nations uh, working uh, around street youth dynamics and the only reason we did a film was a, a colleague of mine that I brought with me was a filmmaker so we started to dabble in in kind of using film as a way to broadcast what we were seeing as well as allow the voices of the young people we were working with to have a have have a a place to to vocalize their experiences mm-hmm. I think when I left Guatemala and I was I was back in Montreal and we were in the editing rooms. I also realized um, that it was a it was a deep it was it was an it was an avenue to connect deeply with our participants in a way that, um, kind of more traditional research methodologies, um, possibly can't and uh the reflection on the relationships that i built as we moved throughout the months of working on a film allowed me to see i think in a much deeper way the kind of nuanced and com- complex nature of this phenomenon that i was exploring and then moving it to kind of when i moved to halifax i had some funds to do it to do an art-based camp for young people on the streets and that was also it was a way to kind of I thought it was just a way that we could share some of the skill sets of art to young people if they were interested and kind of speak to a whole bunch of different elements of kind of their worlds. it ended up being actually a, a beautiful community building exercise where we we kind of we're allowed to show kind of a raw sense of self, all of us, and mm-hmm. be able to, I think, um, sh- yeah, uh, be able to share kind of who we really are and, uh, and at the same time, celebrate the, the, the deep connections we were making and, uh, be vulnerable and raw at the same time. And we all, we all went through that. And it's amazing because I kind of thought I was just going to set this up and I was going to then, you know, try to have some time with my children, but I I ended up my children coming into the circle and all of us kind of, you know, being able to, um, go through particular things. And that was actually my first time of really, really understanding kind of, like you said, the nuances of, uh, you know, things, you know, things can be, um, things can be more than simply one-sided under, uh, um, um, dynamics that there can mm-hmm. be, uh, there can be contradictions that can be uh, deep messiness to phenomenon, um, allowing for the kind of emotive elements, um, to mm-hmm. surface was, was pretty, pretty important to me. It also, you know, we're all learning a skill set. We're all kind of building our own critical consciousness uh, as we learn uh, the processes of doing art. So, in a way, there's a couple different um, processes emerging at the same time, which I think is very, very powerful and deeply human in mm-hmm. in, in in its way of we all kind of were learning about art we all were attempting to message a particular understanding or understandings and at the same time the there was kind of a synergistic element as well that we we almost there's a there's a there's a bit of a cathartic deeper mm-hmm. epiphany understanding that that surfaces in you know when you're doing kind of authentic art
0: I find more and more academics like to use the word rich to describe this or that thing. Like that was a very rich response. That was a very Mm -hmm. rich paper. Um, But I'll use it here. That was like an incredibly rich response. Um, And I, I kind of want to kind of, you know, emphasize the one word you use, which is raw. Like Mm -hmm. that idea of rawness is, is really rich because like what, for example, would be the other side of like, that binary, you know, like what is the opposite of raw? It's sort of like clean, abstract. You know, when we think of raw, we think of like a raw nerve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the opposite of it would be something like unfeeling or invulnerable, something contained, right? Yeah. Um, and you're describing something that is like the other side of that that allows us to experience emotion, uh, to be moved, uh, to be real,
1: um, and and to be vulnerable. At least for me, when I read, you know, academic verse, it, it, it you know, there is, there is, there's, there is a separation between, you know, the reader and the writer. Usually, you know, we try not to have that space in kind of the work that we produce. That there is something that, you know, I showed it at a guaranteed a basic income conference, and in the afternoon. First voice folks were speaking, and mm-hmm. it was it, it so touched me that a few of the first voice folks were saying like that was me, like in that animated piece that Jeff showed earlier, that was me, you know. And it, it, the way that you know we could capture those particular experiences in a real raw way is to me like the 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 biggest compliment. Um, I am mm-hmm. always worried because I also sit outside of this whole world as well. So for me to kind of have the last kind of say in the portrait of this is, is it's daunting. And that's mm-hmm. why I think like engaging as many participants in 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 every product is really important for me.
0: Yeah. I, you know, uh what comes to mind is I, I saw a short film recently at, you know, Central, Halifax Central Library uh called, I think Rising from the Ashes, about the creation of a community hub in Montreal during COVID. Um, And, you know, there's one reflection from a woman that had just, you know, uh, fought cancer, that language of fighting cancer, survived cancer, uh, where she says, like, if you're depressed, help someone like just the the simplicity of a statement like that is so powerful Mm -hmm. uh, because it's not simple. It's actually like deeply, deeply complex. It's just stated simply. And I think that's what sometimes academics forget is that you know stating things simply it doesn't mean that yeah. it's simplistic. Um right. Absolutely. you know and and I wondered if you wanted to talk about um your your work within the Dalhousie School of Social Work Community Clinic. I mean your your chapter on this was really striking to me. You talk about how that clinic is really meant to operate like a bridge between the worlds of community and university. Yeah. Um, that work of moving between worlds is like such a theme in your work. Um, and and here you're looking at your own site of work and saying that, you know, what we're trying to do is be a bridge. Um, how does the clinic kind of set out to do that? And maybe especially how does it do it by, as you write in that chapter, resisting Western notions of individualism and power over? Right, right.
1: Um, I think the the clinic is probably the best example of a combination of the work that i've done in the community over the past 20 years um and i'll just focus on on two particular one was donachy in montreal which was a really unique kind of alternative styled youth shelter uh for folks experiencing homelessness and it was set up with with young people at kind of the helm of of every layer of intervention that they would be able to speak to what is truly needed from their perspective, um, and it was the first time that I ever did something like that. And it 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 again the whole messiness and the complexity of working with a whole bunch of different voices to kind of build something, um, was, was really amazing and really kind of changed the way I think about community development. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then moved towards, uh, out of the cold, which was kind of a nonprofit or on the ground wasn't even nonprofit on the ground. Um, uh, uh, service delivery. It was an emergency overnight shelter in the winter. So it was about six, seven months every year that was set up all by 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 a vast amount of volunteers and a few staff if we could ever find money. And but we once we started to you know solidify a little bit more resources, we kind of had at least a little more consistency around some staffing. But for the vast majority it was folks that were just interested and caring about homelessness—that uh, would be part of our circle. And to me, that was extremely educational around, you know, that we were leaving behind kind of the academic theories and the academic um, languaging of social problem, and moving to a deeply heartfelt. Um, non-professionalized space to provide some form of sanctuary and I think that really kind of um, it, it I, I think what it did was it it solidified my kind of view of a lot of professions um, mm-hmm. that what we really really need what we're lacking in, in in civil society these days are these really caring authentic spaces that you um, kind of can be built on a um, non-hierarchical non-hierarch- model. And so turn to the kind of Dallas Social Community Clinic that um, was was kind of um, developed by myself and Cindy Hall, the field practicums um, coordinator at our school. Um, we, we really wanted to build a community, first we wanted to build something in the community that could speak to the various um, gaps that we were seeing in service delivery. Um, we both kind of came from community. So we were kind of lucky that we had already a vision. We did some consultation, but really we kind of said, let's just try this out and see kind of how it flies. And if it doesn't work, the community will tell us right away and we can close down. Um, so the idea of the, of, of, of the clinic which we don't even know the name, I wish we didn't call it clinic, mm-hmm. but called it just a, a community hub or something like that, was to, you know, I guess, and I, sorry, just before I, I continue on the evolution, um, what was really important about this community clinic for me was uh, trying to see the university world as meaningful to a variety of different settings, right? Like right, university has definitely a place in kind of middle-class environments, in the business worlds, uh, in the educational in, uh, um, uh, landscapes I'm not quite sure where it sits with general uh, mm-hmm. um, communities uh, that are experiencing uh, all the suffering that goes along with this kind of capitalist world we 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 we, we live in, and. Uh... The more and more I worked in community, especially in out of cold, like I had colleagues, like I was the only person who actually had a foot in academia. Everybody else was in nonprofit. They used to always bug me saying like, you know, like, forget Dow, come work with us, you know, come work at the North End Community Clinic. You know, there's a position open, come do that. And I was like, do you know I actually work at a university? Like on time, this is like doing this on, you know, side of my desk. And so Mm -hmm. clinic was for me something that could, I think allow the university a meaningful space in, in impoverished communities. Uh, so that was kind of my, that that's where my heart and Cindy's heart was. Along that, we wanted to have something that, you know, our theories in social work are like, you know, you know, attempting to understand intervention from a, uh, Anti-oppressive, a social justice. For me, I did a lot of research in, in Latin America and work in Latin America. That accompaniment movement. That kind of we work alongside one another. We kind of we 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 hold each other's hands as we fight for kind of the injustices that you know that 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 are in front of us. So all those elements were very important in becoming also a training ground for those in the health professions that are going to be providing these these, these supports to folks down the road. And there's very few community spaces that actually, you know, allow for a, a very interprofessional. We have like occupational therapy, psychology, social work, physio, uh, um, um, nutrition, uh, nursing, we're working on a nurse practitioner right now, like all these different Mm -hmm. elements that can work together. To provide holistic care with the client or the participant at the center, so it was really meaningful for us to be able to kind of move the theories that we speak about, that we that we know has a lot of evidence around them, to kind of a particular platform where we can test them out and see if it's working or not. And you know, we've been. I just I was just at the clinic, and I I would if you asked me how long we've been you know, how long be we've been around. I'd be like seven years. They just told me it's 10 years and we have to celebrate 10 years. Uh, this year. Yeah. So, so like 10 years that we've been doing this and it's so lovely because I was just sitting around the table with all new students in social work and occupational therapy. But today, those are the two disciplines with us. And uh, yeah, every term we see different students. Um, I love the fact that I can also work with folks. Like I. we work with I guess I I've been trained in e, uh, in in a lot of EMDR, so I'm kind of doing some EMDR work. Uh, so we do it's it's so something that is like deeply trauma sensitive, trauma informed. It's low barrier. It provides kind of s- support to those who reach out to us. It, there's very little. Um, um, rules or regulations to kind of what we do, we just, we're a niche to folks that need something that aren't getting it in, 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 in their world right now. And, uh, what we see is we kind of have become branded as, you know, um, a service for those that are, you know, experiencing poverty, um, living in very precarious environments, not on the streets or in shelters, but there has been a lot of NGOs that have been set up for that. those groups. Um, so we're kind of one out. We kind of try to do a lot of prevention work to keep people at least somewhat safe and, and somewhat housed as we work on all the other different elements. So we do kind of the wraparound supports for a lot mm-hmm. of folks. Yeah.
0: I yeah. mean, there is a role. It sounds like, you know, you're saying for the university, it's just a, matter of being, like, self-critical about what that role should be. And it reminded me of, you know, there's this book from Fernwood uh, uh, that's called What Moves Us. It's just like an edited anthology by Alex Kishnabish and Max Haven, where, like, the intro, I think, talks about how, like, really, it's about kind of, they say, you know, disabusing ourselves of these kind of illusions we have as academics. They say, like, really, our use of resources often is, like, unjust, you know, it's it's a, it's a misallocation of resources. And, and they actually refer to uh, what Fred Moten and Stefano Harney call study, right? Which is this notion of like, uh, and I'm quoting them, the collective empowerment and joy that comes from the repossession of the university's literal and metaphorical resources in the name of movements and communities. It sounds like that in some ways is what the clinic is about, you know? Exactly. It's like it's got a role, but it's it's about trying to make the boundaries of the university kind of more porous and shifting and
1: and uh, attentive, responsible. Um, you Maybe, know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it holds such privilege. Mm-hmm. It has such resource, you know, engagement and, and and such currency in our environment. So it has totally. to be kind of exploited to support everybody in society, not just a particular segment.
0: Totally. Um, I totally agree. And, and, you know, like your, your work in like actually going out and engaging with, as you say, First Voices is about that. And I definitely want to ask you about like the, the huge amount of time you've spent engaging with young people uh, who are living on the streets. We really didn't kind of dig into this. You know, I found that research really enlightening. Um, this idea that there are very specific aspects of the youth experience of homelessness uh, that need to be attended to was just not something I had thought about. Um, you talk about how the opportunity for experimentation and identity exploration that's like such a part of being young gets curtailed by processes outside of their control. Uh, this idea that youth who do not take on street value systems and norms find it more difficult to survive on the street, while youth who become part of street subcultures might experience a better quality of, quality of life when they're on the street, but then have difficulty like integrating into mainstream social life like maybe that's sort of intuitive, but your research really uh, reinforces it in this like, um, you know, vivid way. And so, you know, I'm wondering about how your work with so many different young people, right? Like it's not one homogeneous group. Um, uh, Helped you think about like these tensions between different social worlds, different classes, different cultures. Um, And if you could kind of offer listeners, viewers uh, as well, a general sense of like, how being homeless and young brings into focus like the specific politics of dwelling in and claiming like public spaces that are in many ways policed and yeah. and really reserved for things other than everyday
1: life absolutely absolutely and again very eloquently spoken to um yeah i i mean i write that one thing we have to understand and this was with young people, but it can, it applies to, to everybody kind of living on house right now, uh, is that when you're experiencing homelessness, you are living your private world in very, very public spaces. Mm-hmm. And that has a huge impact on your sense of identity and sense of self. The fact that every small element of being human kind of gets surveilled and... Can be a target of criminalization, uh, you know, pushes folks to who are living in on the, in in spaces to a particular kind of othering that we just we don't we don't see in other aspects mm-hmm. of of of, uh, of you know social phenomenon. The dynamics of kind of street worlds. I mean, I feel extremely honored that there were times in my life where I spent a a good amount of time with young people experiencing homelessness that I was a kind of, I was allowed to enter those spaces either through my work in practice or as a as a, as a kind of ethnographer. And I think there was a time in my world where I was actually very good also at, at just building relationships with kind of, um, um, kind of the youth world um, because I was young myself too. So mm-hmm. that I think is very important as a, in, in, in that connection. Um, it That's
0: is ethically, right? Yeah.
1: I've got to say that in um, there. you know, even when I, there are so many times where people be like, okay, what are you here for? I'd be like, I'm actually here for nothing. Right. Um, you know, even that film camp, I'm like, we can do, yeah, Just if there's anything you're interested, like, you know, I've worked with your organizations that kind of have referred, you know, uh, uh, you to me. If there's anything you want to do art or we don't have to do anything. And, you know, it took some time to build that relationship. But I think the fact that there's nothing that we were asking of them, but to mm-hmm. kind of have a space to just dialogue, I think was really, really important. I think also like my work in Guatemala, my work in Toronto, Montreal with young people in the streets has... um allowed for I think a very candid and kind of authentic lens into just the nuance and complexity of, of I mean anybody's world but in particular I was interested in in young people's worlds and to all to just to see kind of the rituals and the the ceremonies of street life um, and to be able to kind of take that as, important rules and structures of the day-to-day is, I think, something that honors that world. And I think mm-hmm. we need to, I, I mean, I, I had a lot of appreciation for the structures and regulations of how you lived on the streets, how you were able to survive, um, what your day-to-day looked like, that I think, you know, was important in also carving out the interventions that are important when you need to escape those worlds and you need to kind of gain a healthier sanctuary of, of of living so that you can kind of move on. I think it was important. And I think you can't forget the context of that. This is also, um, adolescence and Mm -hmm. there is a deep, deep realm of exploration and adventure of, um, Bravado of um, kind of seeking that is important in exploring as you know they kind of live their 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 lives day in and day out in very precarious environments. I, there is something about kind of that youth culture that is also very, very important that we don't speak about in in, in other um, um, populations.
0: Yeah, no, I thought that that work was really unique because like it sort of models a way of seeing too, you know, mm-hmm. it says that like, we can see differences without othering, right? Like right. we can see others empathetically um, and and young people, especially kind of probably internalize that feeling of like the gaze of the other, you know, especially the gaze of the adults seeing these rituals being one of like automatic condemnation. Um, right. And so like, it's, it's not enough really to just make visible these things like there is no there's no ignoring the presence of encampments in the center of our city right? right and yet the ways that we see them differ from person to person and like this is something that you've definitely written a lot about in relationship to covid 19 and and like the ways that the pandemic made certain things visible um you know like it's interesting to see you say for example that you feel like that greater visibility has led to more empathy. Like, I think that's true, but there still seems to be a desire among some parts of the political class maybe, or the middle, middle and upper classes, I don't know, to just make homelessness less visible, as though like that's the way to solve the problem, to just push it to the periphery. Um, but like, what does hiding homelessness achieve from your perspective? And how did COVID, for example, shed light on the issue in ways that have changed us irrevocably, maybe.
1: So there's always been folks that have been living rough, that have been living Mm -hmm. um, in particular encampments and have been known to particular communities or to outreach workers, to government folks. There There seem to be less interest from a collective stance on their well-being. There was always interest when we were close to having a hurricane or when there was a particular climate disaster that um, that's the time where government would turn to folks like us who had deeper relationships with um, particular encampments to see if there is a way that they can be protected through this crisis. I think there's always, I mean, I think government cares when they need to care um, for, you know, folks that, that kind of are situated outside their constituency. I think what COVID did was a, I think it has a much more collective stance of, Empathy in terms of we everybody everybody touched a level of suffering through this collective disaster. um nobody walked away unscathed, so there was a there was an the 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 sense of othering was lessened at that mm-hmm. moment
0: mm-hmm.
1: secondly, as covid kind of as we kind of entered the kind of post covid stages some folks could get back to a normal way of living or, or you know, a way of living that resembled pre-COVID while a greater population didn't. A greater population kind of came out with deeper consequences of that, that disaster. So seeing the rise of a population that is blatantly and obviously suffering Right. You don't live in a tent if you if you have any other means of survival. That kind of basis of suffering, I think, has touched a greater population um, because everybody was kind of has already a bit of a a feeling of of. or a layer of suffering from what they've gone through. So I think that was an easier bridge of understanding. Um, there's good and bad to that, as you know. There's good that it's more visible, so we kind of feel it. Um, but also, we then start to see, and this kind of circular to our beginning of our discussion, then you kind of get pressure, government gets pressure to do something. And a lot of times what they do is they want to just... Kind of get it outside of the public gaze, right? They just want to kind of move it. So you start to see, you know, the formation of another shelter, or you see a formation right now of the palahouse These are things that are like band aids on band aids um, that will demonstrate that they're doing something at one level, but then kind of, you know, we can then start to critique the population if they don't go to these particular interventions mm-hmm. that the government mm-hmm. has set up. So again, it's, it's going to mess it up. And I, I, I bet in a few months, there'll be less sympathy for this population because there's a sense that, okay, the government has set up a lot of these interventions now. Why are there still people that live in the encampment? Again, missing the larger points of you know housing instability, trauma, um, and just a, you know a sense of marginalization.
0: Yeah, no, like it's it's that kind of seductiveness of simple answers, and it's more comfortable to kind of, you know, dwell in that space of individual responsibility. It's just like a, it's an easier narrative in a lot of ways. But, Absolutely. you know, what I what I found really potent and like clear in that CCPA report that you co-authored on homelessness during the pandemic is that focus on how addressing homelessness is actually about holding ourselves responsible for historic wrongs that like recur and persist into the present. Racism, discrimination, colonialism. You know, uh, a group of authors wrote last year in the Taí that uh, as part of their reconciliation journeys, municipalities must streamline the creation of indigenous housing that's not only affordable, culturally safe and trauma-informed with wraparound services to support healthy lives, prevent homelessness, and help indigenous families heal and reconnect. Um, You know, this is, I think, where, where, the the language that you're using heads us toward. is like that specific model of radical care that is radical because it looks at the roots. Um, And and it sounds like all of your work and community has really reaffirmed that sort of fact of um, it really all being rooted in some ways in care. Um, You know, like that's a more durable force than just the kind of reactive model of, of visibility or invisibility being the ultimate determinant like optics being the ultimate baseline yeah. question it's like it's about more than optics right it's about allowing people the conditions
1: under which they can like flourish in the world uh that seems to be the a lot of the right. thrust of what you do absolutely i mean it's about like you said like authentic radical support and care it's about deep deep compassion For uh, a lot of wrongdoings in our culture. And you absolutely, definitely, you know, you definitely need a historical lens and we need to be mobilizing all together to provide the particular care for populations that have been completely ignored and, and, you know, Violated over over generations. We seem to have a few kind of organizations in the community that have been tasked now with making sure that that continues, that we actually have some form of sustainability in terms of Indigenous styles of housing and African Nova Scotia community housing that you know we never saw. Like we, we you know, this is new, this is all new now, and that's another piece that that has surfaced outside of COVID. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, thanks so much for just giving us a way to kind of uh, see a future of material hope in a lot of ways when it comes to this, like, obviously, in a lot of ways, very intractable issue, as you said, like this, this disaster existed before the disasters we're seeing one on top of another now. Um, And it's not like there's no way around it, you have to go through it. Um, So, yeah, I appreciate you talking to me today.
1: Well, thank you very much, Scott. And again, like your eloquence and your commentary is beautiful. I appreciate that.